0: Well, I am looking forward to working through Genesis 26 with you this morning. The title of the sermon is, Like Father, Like Son. Have you ever found yourself repeating some of the same mistakes your parents made? Not fun to think about, is it? (laughs) Developing some of the same bad habits... You know, but you can flip that around too, right? Have you ever found yourself imitating some of the good examples they set for you and developing some of the same good habits? You see, a few weeks ago, I preached a sermon titled Godly Parenting, and we were reminded of how much influence we have in our children's lives. And today's message is not as much about parenting, but we do see Isaac following in the footsteps of his father in both good and bad ways. And we can all relate to that. Those of us who have kids have had plenty of those moments when your kids, you see them repeat words, actions, or expressions that obviously were borrowed from you. And sometimes it's cute and adorable. And sometimes it's terrifying. And it causes you to just reevaluate your life because you see yourself and you're like, oh, I don't like that. A woman named Sue Lively shared some stories she collected from... From other parents, a mom named Heather said, my youngest daughter likes to discipline her older brother and sister. She knows how we usually count down as a warning before timeouts up in their room. So one day at the table, loud and clear at age two, she said to her older brother, eat your food. Ten, nine, eight, all the way down to zero. Okay, up to your room and pointed upstairs. Needless to say, we couldn't stop laughing because of listening to us. My daughter could count backwards before she could count forwards. (laughs) A mom named Virginia said, When my daughter was a toddler, we were having problems with our dog being aggressive, and I knew my frustration had reached its max when one day she stomped her feet and said quite emphatically, Darn dog! Except she didn't say darn. mom named Katie said, sometimes my son, age two, will put himself in timeout. Makes my job easier. I can hear him say to himself, no throwing toys. One, two, three, timeout. And then he'll go sit in timeout. <laughs> but as we think about our own stories that we can relate to and the ways that we've influenced our children or been influenced by our parents. Um, Let's pray, and then we're going to dig into how that happened with Isaac. God, thank you for bringing us together this morning. I pray that this word, this message would be what we need it to be, that you would give me clarity of mind and voice and um, communication, Lord, and that there would be worship happening during this time. Lord, this is, this is a part of our worship together, Lord, is receiving the word of God into our hearts and our minds. And so I pray that we would view it as an act of worship and that it would be a fragrant offering to you, that it would please you, that what I say would please you this morning and that the way that we listen would please you and what we do with it would please you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to start out in verses 1 through 6. It says, There was another famine in the land in addition to the one that had occurred in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, at Gerar. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land that I tell you about. Stay in this land as an alien, and I will be with you and bless you. For I will give all these lands to you and your offspring, and I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give your offspring all these lands, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Because Abraham listened to me and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions. So Isaac settled in Gerar. So throughout this chapter, we're going to see parallels of Isaac's life with his father's. And it's really quite amazing how the whole chapter plays out like a repeat of events that we've already studied before with Abraham, but with some differences. So we know that there was a famine during Abraham's time, but Abraham and Sarah did go to Egypt. This time the Lord stepped in and told Isaac, don't go there. Instead, he settled in Gerar, and we don't know the exact extent of the famine, but it seems pretty safe to assume that where Isaac settled was within its boundaries. And so God was telling him not to leave the area encompassing the famine, but instead to stay in trust in the Lord's provision, which makes sense, especially when God came to him and said, I will be with you, Isaac. It was a test of Isaac's faith. You know, would he trust God to be his provider even in the midst of a famine? And Isaac did. He did. And look what happened. We'll jump down to 12 through 14, and then we're going to be coming back. We're going to go through the whole thing. But 12 through 14 says, Isaac sowed seed in that land. And in that year, he reaped a hundred times what was sown. The Lord blessed him, and the man kept getting richer and richer until he was very wealthy. He had flocks of sheep, herds of cattle, and many slaves, and the Philistines were envious of him. So Isaac feasted in the land of famine, didn't he? And how could he do that? Because of his faith and the power of God, a God who turns famines into feasts. That's the kind of God he is. And I'm not saying that in any way, you know, to imply that we're guaranteed prosperity or anything like that. But I'm also not going to sit here and act like God is not a good provider. No matter what the scenario might seem. He takes joy in providing for His children. Matthew 6, 25-34 is a very good reminder. I love this passage. I'm going to read it kind of slowly. Maybe in the way that... Jesus may have said it to the original audience. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. His kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Every day has enough trouble of its own. I love that passage. I don't think you can read that enough. See, Isaac faced two roads escape to Egypt, which would provide relief from the famine and would, by human reasoning, be the best way to guarantee success. Or stay, which by human logic wouldn't make much sense, and trust God for the results. And he chose to trust God, and what do you know? It worked. You know, God loves to display His glory. Did you know that? It's kind of a thing for Him. He really likes People seeing his power and his majesty. He really enjoys his children being in awe of his goodness. But he's not inclined to do that when we don't have faith in him. Why? Because a big part of it is when we don't have faith, we don't set ourselves up to depend on him. If we set ourselves up to depend on our own strength and power and reasoning, God has little desire to display his magnificence to us. Why would he? Because we wouldn't give him the glory. We would just pat ourselves on the back and say, good job, self. Look what you did. Isaac's faith didn't grow those crops. We know that. God did that. But Isaac practicing his faith provided that opportunity for God to show off. So often we find ourselves trying to avoid dependence on God by leaning on our own understanding, our own plans, our own power, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps instead of letting our faith create opportunities for God to show off who He is. He's a God who turns famines into feasts. Again, I'm not trying to take us down a path that says, hey, do this, get rewarded. Do this, don't get rewarded. Now, I'm not trying to, I don't want to create a works-based life where we're using God like a genie. And anytime things are going good, we think we're being faithful. And anytime something goes wrong, we think, oh, there must be something wrong. I did something wrong. But this is another one of those tensions that I'm always talking about that we have to deal with in Scripture. It's true that God rewards faith and faithfulness. I believe that wholeheartedly. The Bible just affirms it over and over and over. And the rewards, they don't always look the same. They don't always come at the same times and the same forms. But they're real. He turns famines into feasts. He did it with Isaac. He did it with Sarah and Rebekah after they had famines. They had childbearing famines. Right? He did it with Joseph, who we'll study later on in Genesis. You know, in between the Old and New Testaments, there was a famine. It was a famine of the word of God. And what did he do with that? The best gift ever. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. So whether it's a famine of food, of children, of truth, or whatever it is, we can be assured that God is able to provide. I can testify to that from my own life. In our own way we faced similar choice to Isaac's except you know on a lesser scale and without the direct intervention of God but I could have chased more security in life right if I wanted to set myself up for by earthly wisdom for financial success and comfort and an easy life you know I wouldn't have ended up in Eugene <laughs> I'm just saying Like, we wouldn't have ended up here and we wouldn't have stayed. Right? Did you know that there's a pastoral famine right now? Churches are having a hard time finding pastors. It's sad. It's happening all over the place. If you didn't know that, it's it's something to be praying about. You know, there's also an affordable housing famine in Eugene. And so I'm saying, Leslie and I could have looked at our situation and said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to stay in the South or the Midwest where I can make substantially more money. We could buy a house for substantially less money. And we probably would would have been able to buy one immediately instead of waiting years and pouring 100 grand into rent before doing it. And hey, oh, and the gas would be cheaper. And uh, the schools would probably be better. And the streets would be cleaner. And the churches would be bigger. Now, hold on a second. If you think that I'm trying to prop myself up or, or that I'm trying to go negative about where God has brought us. Because that's not what's happening. You see, thankfully, praise the Lord. And don't praise us. Praise the Lord. That what we decided to do with those choices is trade. We talked about trading last week, right? We traded human logic for godly wisdom to step out in faith. Why? Because our purpose in life is not our security, it's His glory. And what did God do? You know what He did? He provided exactly what we needed. And more. He provided the right church. The right job for Leslie. He provided the right locations for our family to bounce around to so that we could be influences in certain people's lives. He provided everything that we needed and more. And so here we are in Eugene, and as far as I'm concerned, we're feasting. And let's be honest, if the goal was financial security and an easy life, I would have avoided pastoring altogether. (laughs) There's easier ways to live. But this one's awfully rewarding, especially when you look at the eternal investments, and especially with a church like Riviera. So whatever choice you might be facing right now, or maybe in the future, there's always going to come a time when you'll come to a crossroads. And one path relies on human reasoning And appears to provide everything that you want and the other path relies on God and it doesn't actually appear to provide anything for you because it's dark and you can't see down that path and so the path of self-reliance it's nice and big and wide and it's lit up and and you can see down it, and it's like this way to your dream home and early retirement and the path of faith is dark and mysterious this way to the unknown but 2 Corinthians 5.7 says we walk by faith, not by sight. And Hebrews 11.1 1 says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So it's like, hey, I don't know what's down this path, but I'm convicted that it's the one that God wants. And we might not know what's along that path. But can I let you in on a little secret? Better lean in. We know what's at the end. Right? Oh, and there's another little secret. We know who walks that path with us. Those two things should be all we need. So don't be scared of that mysterious, dark, path that requires faith. We're going to move on to verse 7 now. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place will kill me on account of Rebecca, for she is a beautiful woman. Oh boy, here we go again. Now you know in verse 5, God pointed out why he would bless Isaac, and it was because of Abraham. He said, Abraham listened to me and kept my mandates, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions. So God pointed Isaac to Abraham as a good example. But apparently he didn't get specific enough with Isaac. Oh, not no, oh, not in that way, Isaac. I guess we need to get more specific with our kids. I can picture Leslie sitting down with Judah. Oh, buddy, I hope you grow up to be like your dad. Accept <laughs> this. Oh, and and this, and this instance. And okay, okay, but I better stop her because she could go on for a while. Good examples are great, right? It's so helpful to have a good example when I'm having to do new work on our vehicles that I haven't done before. I'll go to YouTube and I'll watch good examples of people doing it before me. And and it's super helpful. And maybe some of you have benefited from good examples in your life, whether it's parenting or teaching or cooking or investing or working, whatever it may be, good examples are meant to be imitated Bad ones are meant to be avoided. We learn from both, right? But here's the thing. It's not always so easy to avoid the bad and imitate the good. Sometimes we find ourselves imitating the bad and avoiding the good. Have you ever found yourself imitating a bad example? There may have been a day in your life when all of a sudden you heard one of your parents and yourself, but not in a good way. Oh, no sound just like my dad. You know, my parents might be watching this. I'm not picking on you guys. Maybe it's something you were trying to avoid, but you ended up just falling into it anyway. Or maybe it's something that you didn't even realize was a bad example when you learned it. But later on in life, you grew up and you recognize, oh, this isn't good, but it had already ingrained itself as a habit and hasn't been so easy to get rid of. Well, I didn't know yelling wasn't a good way to communicate. I mean, uh, that's just how I grew up. Everybody yelled at each other. Or maybe you didn't realize it was a bad example. And then one one day you finally tried it and it was just a disaster. And it blew up in your face. A lot of parents go through that, especially if you're getting your parenting tips from magazines and blogs instead of Scripture. Nonetheless, in this chapter, we see Isaac following both good and bad examples that he received in his life from his parents. And that's the unfortunate reality we face as both parents and children. Parents must understand our kids pick things up from us for better and for worse. We all know it. We've seen it. It doesn't mean that they won't grow up to make different decisions than we do, but we can't deny the influence we have in their life. Therefore, we must intentionally work to make sure we increase the good examples and decrease the bad ones. And this is pretty important too. And this one's in your notes. We we need to confess our bad examples to our kids. We got to do that instead of just waiting. We don't want to wait and let them grow up before they finally recognize the folly of our choices after they've repeated our mistakes. You see, Abraham should have burned it into Isaac's head. Don't tell people your wife is your sister. (laughs) Have you had that conversation with your kids? I mean, but seriously, you should have said, listen, son, we need to sit down and talk because I need to tell you about some things because I don't want to see you make the same mistakes that I did. But unfortunately, parents are often embarrassed and and they're ashamed of those mistakes and they don't want to confess them to their children. But I implore you to have those conversations at the right times when your children will be able to understand. We can also learn from the perspective of a child Right? We're all children, and we've all been given good and bad examples, but we shouldn't go blindly into our lives just hoping and praying that we're going to follow the good ones and avoid the bad ones. We need to be intentional to evaluate the examples that we've been given. I received good and bad examples growing up, and some of the bad ones I ended up imitating. and I've had to work to change, but there's others that I was able to avoid entirely. But that is very unlikely to happen without intentional evaluation. So you need to take a look at your life. Look at the ways that you're following the examples that you've been given. And with the help of God's word, God's spirit, and God's people, make a plan to recognize and avoid the bad examples and imitate the good ones. And I'm going to leave that there for a second because we're about to move on to verses 8 through 11. In verse 8. It says, when Isaac had been there for some time, Abimelech king of the Philistines looked down from the window and was surprised to see Isaac caressing his wife Rebekah. Abimelech sent for Isaac and said, so she really is your wife? How could you say she's my sister? Isaac answered him, because I, I thought I might die on account of her. Then Abimelech said, what have you done to us? One of the people could easily have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech warned all the people, whoever harms this man or his wife will certainly be put to death. So that word that we read on the first slide was translated caressing. Other translations say laughing with. Uh, The KJV says sporting with. The New King James says showing endearment to. And the NRSV says fondling So it appears to be a very difficult word to translate precisely, but we know that whatever was going on between Isaac and Rebekah caused alarm to Abimelech. It wasn't like a situation where they were just kind of being friendly, having fun with each other. It was an, oh, Isaac, what are you doing to your sister situation? And it's kind of funny because I was telling this story to our kids this week, and I got to this part where you know, Abimelech saw Isaac and Rebecca together, and and it kind of, whatever he saw them doing uh, alerted to him that they were not brother and sister, but they were married, and I was trying to come up with examples of, like, well, like, maybe they, maybe he saw them kissing or something, and Judah and Emery were like, you can kiss your brother or sister, (laughs) and I'm like, well, yeah, but, you know, the way that you kiss your brother or sister is different than the way that you kiss your husband or wife, and they were like, huh? (laughs) So it was kind of going over their heads, but you guys understand. First of all, this shows us though that Isaac's faith had not yet fully matured. God told him, I will be with you. But he didn't appear to believe that. Kent Hughes said, Isaac did not believe that God was with him. He might've theologically affirmed it if asked. But he did not subjectively hold to it in his heart. And that's an important point for Christians to understand. There's a big difference between affirming a truth and living a truth. Remember the book of James, when we studied that? James said, hey, even the demons believe and they fear God, but they don't follow They don't humble themselves and repent and practice faith in Christ. And this is one of those truths. I know that we've said it over and over. You've heard it over and over. But it's repeated over and over in Scripture. And you might get tired of hearing it. But I'm telling you, if the Bible is repeating something, then we probably need to hear it over and over and over. Just because you believe something doesn't mean your life gives testimony to your belief. I can say... I believe junk food is bad for me, but what does my life testify to, right? The ducks can believe that they're a better team than the beavers, but what did the final score testify to? So you can say that we believe the Bible is true, that God's way is the best way. No, God will provide. God is, oh yeah, God is the most important thing in the world, of course. But what does your life testify to? I don't think we can be reminded of that often enough. But the other sad part about this section we just read is that Isaac had to be rebuked by an unbeliever. And it is, we have a big problem when unbelievers have a higher standard of holiness than we do. Oh, but our culture loves the mantra. Well, Christians are just like everybody else, but forgiven. Uh, no. No. We better not be just like everybody else. We haven't just been forgiven, we've been transformed, we've become new creations. See, the world has no standard to hold itself to other than whatever it makes up. The world doesn't recognize its purpose to glorify God in life. But Jesus said in John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my my disciples, if you have love for one another. But we also can't separate that from what Jesus said in the very next chapter as well. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not they will know we are Christians by our sins. That we proclaim to the world that we're forgiven for. They'll know us by our love. Unfortunately, though, sometimes unbelievers do end up having a higher standard of holiness than professing Christians, and it's certainly not always that way. I wouldn't say it's even usually that way. I would say it's probably rarely the case, but sometimes it is. And it might happen because someone who says they're a Christian excuses their sin in the name of of forgiveness and grace instead of just repenting. Or it might happen when Christians are more concerned about reputation than holiness. And churches cover up things like abuse or any kind of sin issue. And sometimes the world comes along and they call us out. They point out sin and hypocrisy that's disgusting even to unbelievers. And of course, there are times when the world is disgusted by us because we hold to God's standard of holiness. But that doesn't nullify the fact that sometimes they are rightfully angry and disgusted by Christians' behavior. And it shouldn't be so. It's a sad situation when God has to use unbelievers to hold us accountable. It's harmful to our own lives and to our testimony to the world. I'm going to share another quote by Kent Hughes, but there's a part of me that doesn't want to. Because it's a stinger. Okay? And I don't like hearing it any more than anybody else. But I need to hear it. You need to hear it. So we're going to do it anyway. He said, we must understand that we are being watched. When you sin, you may be sure that a non-believer is watching through some window. If that doesn't cut, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if your skin can be, can be cut (laughs) because that hurts, but it's a good pain. It's something that we need. In verse 15, the Philistines stopped up all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of his father, Abraham, filling them with dirt. And Abimelech said to Isaac, leave us for you are much too powerful for us. So Isaac left there, camped in the Gerar Valley and lived there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham and that the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. He gave them the same names his father had given them. Then Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of spring water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, the water is ours. So he named the well Esek because they argued with him. Then they dug another well and quarreled over that one also. So he named it Sitna. He moved from there and dug another and they did not quarrel over it. He named it Rehoboth and said, For now the Lord has made space for us and we will be fruitful in the land. So I don't really know why the Philistines stopped up those wells instead of just using them for themselves. I also don't know exactly when they did it. You know, so maybe they just didn't see themselves as being powerful enough to use those wells uh, and, and overpower whoever was owning them at the time. And they resorted to vandalism instead. But in this part of the passage is where I think we can be really impressed with Isaac. He didn't resort to fighting. He didn't make trouble for Abimelech. Instead, he went the peaceful route, and he didn't retaliate against the Philistines when they kept coming along and taking the wells that they were digging. And that was pretty messed up too, right? They would find water, and, and then the Philistines would come along and say, yeah, this is ours now. Twice that happened. That's an injustice. But it's like Isaac had just finished reading the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said in Matthew 5, 38 through 41, have, you've have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other toward him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Or it's like he had read Romans 12. 17 through 19 says, never repay evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all people, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Be at peace with all people. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's like Isaac was living out the teachings of the New Testament before they even existed. He chose the path of patience and peace, even though he knew that he was being wronged and he trusted God. See, he could have had the mentality, oh, I'm not going to let them get away with this. He also could have had another mentality, oh, no, we have to have those wells. We don't know if we'll ever find water again. But they just kept moving and digging and they kept finding water, which is pretty amazing in itself. See, the world thinks it can take from us, but it doesn't understand the God we serve. Hebrews 13 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's finish out the end of this chapter. Verse 23 says, From there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the Lord God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring because of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there, called on the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. Isaac's servants also dug a well there. Now Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Fickle, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, why have you come to me? You hated me and sent me away from you. They replied, we have clearly seen how the Lord has been with you. We think there should be an oath between two parties, between us and you. Let us make a covenant with you. You will not harm us just as we have not harmed you, but have done only what was good to you sending you away in peace. You are now blessed by the Lord. So he prepared a banquet for them, and they ate and drank. They got up early in the morning and swore an oath to each other. Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. On that same day, Isaac's servants came to tell him about the well they had dug, saying to him, We found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is still Beersheba today. And then we have this last couple verses of the chapter that I'm not really going to go into this morning, but might make some of you laugh. When Esau was 40 years old, he took as his wives Judith, daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Basemath, daughter of Elon, the Hittite. They made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Oh, the (laughs) in-laws. No, that's funny. But this is another spot that's almost identical to what happened with Abraham. Even the names. If you remember, Abimelech and Fickle are the same names that happened in the story that we studied with Abraham before. It's unlikely that they're the same people. It's not impossible, but it's unlikely. More likely is the fact that they would have these names that the Philistine leaders carry kind of like comes with the title, right? comes with the position, like, like a name, like Pharaoh. So different men, but using the same names. Again, some of these things are so similar that I'm not going to rehash the same themes, but I want to point out that God's presence in Isaac's life was repeated three times in this chapter. And it happened to be future present and past in verse Or was it? Three, God said, I will be with you. In verse 24, God came to Isaac and said, I am with you. And then in verse 28, it was Abimelech and his people that said, the Lord has been with you. Did you know the same is true for us? Do you remember what Jesus said after he gave the great commission? He said, and lo, I am with you Always. To the end of the age. It might not always feel like it. But understand the reality that you live in. God is. He has been with us. He is with us. And he will be with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. And there's many different things that you could take home today in your notes or in your heart. And I think that they're all useful, but maybe you especially needed something this morning. Maybe you especially needed to hear that God turns famines into feasts. And when you're willing to walk into that dark, mysterious path that requires faith, God is willing to show off his power and his glory. Maybe you might be facing life decisions And you're at that crossroads and you're like, this path relies on me and this path relies on God. And you need to figure out which one are you going to take. Or maybe you're struggling with imitating bad examples and avoiding the good ones. And you need to flip the script. Or maybe you're a parent or a child and you need to do some evaluating of the examples that you're giving or receiving. Maybe you need to go home and have some... Conversations with your kids that you've never mustered up the courage to have. Maybe you need, maybe your mind and your mouth are saying one thing and then your life is testifying something else and you need to reconcile those. Or maybe if unbelievers peeked through your window, even they would be disgusted with what they see. And those are very convicting and challenging thoughts. But I also want you to remember that God is loving and redeeming. It's never too late to right wrongs. There's no sin that can't be overcome. There's no life that can't be changed. No script that can't be flipped. God has been with you, is with you, and will be with you. If that's the path that you want to walk. But can I let you in on a little secret? We know what's at the end of that path. And we know who's walking with us. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for just being you we studied so much about your character and your faithfulness throughout the life of Abraham. And then here we are watching Isaac repeat some of the same mistakes that Abraham did. And he still, you you were still so good and so patient and so faithful. And that's really good news for us because we need it too. And we might get into a cycle where we're repeating the same mistakes over and over and over. But I am so thankful that it's never too late to turn that around. And I pray this morning that anyone who needs to do that, Lord, that they would not wait any longer. That they would believe, but not just affirm in their minds, but also practice faith in that reality that you can change us. And that we can trust you. When we step out onto that path of faith, it can be scary. It can feel daunting and overwhelming, but it only feels that way when we forget that we know what's at the end and we know who walks with us. And it's easy, Lord, I, in my own life. It's easy sometimes to, to look around and to, to think about some of the things that happened and some of the things that I wish would have gone differently. And, uh, but I also have to come back to reality and say, wow, it, who, God has provided. Look at who he is. Like, he's, he owns the cattle of a thousand hills. Like what, what is it to God to provide for my needs whenever I practice faith? It's nothing. You have all the power in the world. So we pray that we would practice our faith and create those opportunities for you to show off who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.